Good morning, everybody. My name is Eric Solomon. I get to serve here as the pastor of this congregation at TVC. And, and as we just prayed, uh, and as we've been praying the past couple of weeks, I want to bring up um, the, the crisis in Ukraine again because I don't want it to just continue to, continue to fill our prayers. Amen? And I want you to be encouraged that as you continue to participate with us as a community, as you continue to regularly give, our church family across all three of our congregations have have been able to invest $10,000 each month in support of eight missionary families that are living and lifting up the gospel every day in the five nations that are surrounding Ukraine. And so I want to thank you for your faithfulness in giving because that is is what makes that possible grateful that the leadership of this church years ago has also not just done that, but, but established this emergency relief account through our regular giving that is used in crisis moments like this to strategically support and further gospel work. And so this week, we were able to send initial emergency grants to our partner agencies, delivering food, medical supplies, money for fuel, other essentials inside Ukraine, recognizing that the doors in some of the hardest hit areas might be closing soon. And so we're continuing to prayerfully monitor the situation. They're staying in touch with our our ministry partners in the region. And and there's more emergency relief funds that are going to be channeled in the coming weeks. But but I wanted to to bring that up to you as as we continue in worship to thank you for your faithfulness in giving and to encourage you to continue to, to give online or at the boxes in the back. Because we don't just worship by singing and by praying. We also worship by giving generously and sacrificially so that the Lord might use the resources he has called us to steward to bless others, to care for others, especially our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. So I want to invite you to continue to worship by giving to God. And then I also want to invite the kids who are here to stand up, and you can head out to your classrooms in the back. Um, We're about to get into our sermon. I just want to pray that you guys in your classrooms would uh, grow to love Jesus better. And one of the things that I say, even as the kids are leaving, we've said often enough in the church, I hope you have remembered it, that, that these kids are not the future of the church. Amen? They are the church right now. They're a part of our church family, and we're grateful that we get a chance to, to worship with them on Sunday mornings. So as the kids head out, I will ask you to stand back up as we read God's word. This morning, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, 11, verse through chapter 6, verse 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the carts in the back. You can also follow along on the screen behind me as I read. Like I said, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, and I want you to listen to God's words for us from these chapters in his scriptures. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, 
we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is God's word. You may be seated. Evangelism. What comes to mind when you hear that word? Right, do you see a, 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 a TV preacher, a televangelist with a, a toll-free number flashing across the screen? Do you get sweaty palms thinking about the time you tried to work up the courage to talk to the person next to you on the airplane? Do you think about tent revivals with loud music and even louder preachers? Do you think about a gift that's reserved for a select few extra extroverted people? Do you think about something from the 80s or 90s that more respectful Christians don't do anymore? Or maybe when you hear that word, you think about the first time you heard about Jesus. In high school or, or in college or even as a kid in Sunday school, maybe, maybe you hear the word evangelism and, and it reminds you of the person who was enough to explain the gospel to you. Or then again, maybe you hear that word and are filled with intense feelings of guilt or social anxiety. What comes to mind and what comes to heart when someone starts talking about evangelism? What is evangelism? What, why is it so hard? Why do we do it? Or, or, or why don't we do it? Or who should evangelize? How should we evangelize? Is evangelism more of a 90s church thing? Is it even important for the church today? This morning, as we continue our gospel culture series, I want to convince you, my goal this morning is to convince you that evangelism is not only important, but essential to a church that wants to be faithful and fruitful. A church that wants to be biblical, or as we've called this series, a church that wants to have a, cultivate a gospel culture. If it is not a family that both individually and collectively preaches the gospel, teaching people the good news of Jesus, trying to persuade them that it is not only true, but it's their only hope. And I want to show you what I mean from our text in 2 Corinthians this morning. Because according to this text, evangelism is not a, a program or, or a calendar events that we put on the church calendar. It's, it's not a record of how many people prayed a prayer or, or raised their hands at an altar call. No, evangelism is about reconciled people who participate in the reconciliation of others. It is, as some people have said, beggars showing other beggars where they can find bread. It is like Jim Elliott, the missionary, said, a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. But evangelism is not just an add-on to the Christian life. It is core to who we are. Because embedded in the heart of all to be a witness in Acts 1.8, when the early church is being formed and, and, and Jesus has resurrected, one of the things that he, he calls his people, one of the things that he, he labels us as is his witnesses. Witnesses who tell others not only about Jesus, but about what he has done for us, what he offers people, the only way to salvation, our, our, our only hope in life and in death. But when I say that, I don't mean that we're just witnesses. We are empowered witnesses. We are, we are commissioned witnesses. We are royal witnesses. Our, our message is not our own. Our words are not the ones who save. And we are not self-employed. We are commissioned and empowered by a king to bring his message of peace and reconciliation to his enemies. Enemies that are just like we were 
dead in their sin and active in their rebellion. So I'll say it like this. Here's the, the, the tip of the spear. The way we connect what we know to what we do this morning out of this text, right? So like I said last week, this is my, my sermon in one sentence. But that doesn't mean when I say this that you can be like, all right, good, I'm checking out. We are called. I need to stop making that joke. It gets everybody off track real fast. We are called to be the ambassadors that the king saved us to be. Our text this morning describes us as ambassadors. And not just some he's called local churches that have been strategically placed by the Spirit of God all over the world to communicate the message of the King. Everyone who has been saved by Jesus is commissioned by Jesus to spread the good news of Jesus. He has saved us not just to be his, but to be his ambassadors. Let me show you how this text brings us to that conclusion by, by starting, by setting the scene for you. So I want you to look at the beginning of our text, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 13. The text tells us this. Uh, Paul is writing, he says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. This beginning part of the text should feel like we kind of stepped into the middle of a letter because we did. Right? Here's the quick version. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he is having to defend himself and his ministry to them because there are some false teachers that have shown up and have, have started to slander him, slander the ministry that the Lord has, has given him, saying things like he is out of his mind or that, that he's not even really sent by God. In this text, then, Paul is explaining not just his ministry, but his very identity as a messenger. And this is why he explains at the very beginning that he fears the Lord and that this fear is what's driving him to persuade others of the gospel. Because ultimately, Paul could care less what other people think of him because he fears God, and that's who he's following. And ultimately, it is God who knows what he is. But Paul's not hard-hearted trying to avoid relationship. His hope is that they, the, the, the Corinthian Christians, would see things as God sees things. Right? He's not trying to rehash all his old arguments for them, but he does want them to have a different perspective on reality. And it is out of this that Paul explains not just his identity, but our identity as ambassadors of the king of the universe. And so Paul turns an argument about his credentials into an explanation of our identity. Actually, three descriptions of our identity in Christ and how that translates into our lives as living testimonies. These three descriptions are how I want us to walk through the text this morning and see that calling that we have as ambassadors. And here are the three descriptions. Compelled by love, we persuade. Recreated by grace, we live for him. And reconciled by God, we implore. These are all words that have been taken out of the text. You see, Paul is explaining his ministry and the ministry of every Christian by grounding us in who we are and explaining what that means for how we live. Compelled by love, we persuade. Recreated by grace, we live for him. And reconciled by God, we implore. This is why any biblical church marked by a gospel culture must also be defined by an evangelism culture, a, a, a culture of evangelism. Let me show you that by starting at verse 14. We're going to start with Christ's compelling love. Look at the text. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he, being Jesus, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Compelled by the love of Jesus. 
compelled, uh, uh, restrained, uh, essentially telling the Corinthians that this isn't something he's just choosing to do. He didn't just make this up because he thought this was a good money-making idea. He has no other choice. He has been so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus, overtaken by the love that God has shown in the gospel, that he is compelled to convince others of that love. Convinced of what Jesus has directed, Christians are compelled by love. The love that has been shown to us, the love that Jesus has for others, and the love that changes everything to the point where it transforms even our motivations and we are no longer compelled by, by things like our status or our brand or how much we get or how much we can consume. We are compelled by love. We seek to convince others. Remember the first verse in our text, 2 Corinthians 5.11? Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. Fearing God is not worrying that he's going to take us out if we make one wrong move. It is actually believing him when he tells us who he is and treating him like that. He is. Like, like the just judge and, and loving father and, and generous creator and faithful provider and holy God that he is. Fearing God is trusting him when he tells us who he is and when he tells us who we are, who humanity is, because we fear him and we trust him. We are compelled by his love and grounded in the fear of the Lord, and so we try to convince and persuade others of his love, of, of who he is, that, that, that it is good and right to fear him. Christians are convinced people who try to convince others of what has convinced them. That God is holy and righteous and good. That God is loving and sacrificial. That apart from Christ, humanity is dead in sin. But in Christ, God resurrects us to new life. Christians are convinced people who try to convince others of what has convinced them. And so the question then comes up, are we really convinced of his love? Are we really convinced that we need his love? That we didn't just add it on to our lives to make us 10% happier? That we didn't just, uh, that, that, that is our only hope. That is the only hope for all of humanity. Convinced people try to convince others of what has convinced them. And Christians have been convinced of the love of God in Christ. But let's be honest, something has changed in the church recently. The Barner Research Group has done a lot of work in this area over the last couple of years, and, and specifically in evangelism. And here's what some of their data shows. I just picked out a couple of them. In 1993, 9 out of 10 Christians agreed with this statement. Every Christian has a responsibility to share their faith. And yet in 2017, just two-thirds say so. If you're doing the math, I had to check myself because pastor math, that's a 25-point drop. Nearly half of Christians admit that they would avoid a spiritual conversation if it meant that their non-Christian friend would reject them. In 2019, nearly half of millennial so pointing the finger, practicing Christians said it is wrong to evangelize. There's something that's changed in our church context. We have made spiritual conversations and sharing our faith optional add-ons to our walk with Christ. Or worse yet, we have started to view evangelism as not just optional, but, but borderline or even actually offensive and disrespectful. Now, even as I say that, have there been outrightly offensive and disrespectful evangelism? Definitely. Right from the street preacher who picks a fight with everybody who passes, to the sidewalk missionary who won't let you pass until you've taken a tract, 
to the person who waits until an airplane ride to, to corner someone into talking about what they believe. There are many examples of rude evangelism. But these examples should not lead us to abandon our calling. Instead, they should make us want to live into our calling better. A calling that is compelled by love, not trying to argue or bully people into the kingdom, but love people to Jesus. We are called to be the ambassadors that the king saved us to be, which means we are called to be ambassadors like the king. You might be surprised to see how he himself preached the gospel of the kingdom. If you were to track all the stories and and pick out these details to those who did not know God or who were seeking God, he was completely compassionate. He was direct and he was firm, but his eyes were filled with love as he looked at people who were were lost in their sins and and, and truth with with truth-filled grace. In fact, if you track the stories, he reserved his harshest words, not for those that were outside of God's people, but for those who were inside. Because those who are part of God's people should be compelled by love, not constrained by pride. This reality is something that still... Because as God's people, we are not some kind of special spiritual elite. No, we are those, like our second point says, that have been recreated by grace. And because of that, we live our lives for him. Look at the text, 2 Corinthians 5, 15-17. And he died for all... That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. I don't know if us keep Jesus in a corner of our lives. If you're in a, a biblical church and around true Christians and and reading the Bible and praying and trying to grow in Jesus, there's something that almost borderline annoying tends to happen. Salvation doesn't stay in its box. It gets everywhere. It gets into everything. There's no aspect of gospel and by his spirit. Why? Because when God saves us by his gospel, he makes us new, the text says. He starts with us what he plans to do with all of creation. Make everything new. And so as part of his new creation, it changes everything from like the... We used to think about Jesus from a worldly point of view, a, a, a way of thinking and seeing that, that sees the cross, that, that, that we, might, we, we think we witness a, a failed revolution, that, that believes Jesus was some other a, a wackadoodle who forgot to take his meds. But God opens our eyes and we see not a maniac, but the most sane human that there is who saw us for who we are, sinners in desperate need of grace, who saw the world for what it was, groaning under the weight of its rebellion, and who did what needed to be done, dying in our place and coming back to life, not just as some kind of nice gesture, but as the beginning of the transformation of the world and everyone who believes. We have been by grace, and it changes everything about us, how we live, how we see other people, We no longer see others as as enemy combatants, but as as sinners like us in desperate need like us. We we see our brothers and sisters in Christ not just as as friends that we like to hang out with, but as as family, as people who are clinging to grace that, that made them and made us new. And it is that grace that courses through every area of our lives as individuals and as a church family. The, the image that the text almost gives, it's, it's almost like this, we've been given corrective lenses and we can finally see things for what they are. 
You see, I remember the first time I started wearing glasses when I was a kid. I wear contacts now. Praise God. But when I start, first started wearing glasses, I resisted that first because at that time, there were no uh, what you might And I already knew that I was a nerd. I didn't need to advertise it on my face. But when I put them on, everything changed. I stopped getting the headaches that I thought were normal. I could see people's faces instead of blurry outlines. And it, and it didn't really matter at that time what others thought of my glasses because I could finally see reality. Hazy outlines of reality that tempt us to believe that the world is made up of, of haves and have-nots. Suffering the aches of sin in our hearts and, and, and lives, believing that the only way to find relief is to self-medicate with more sin. No, in Christ, we have been recreated by grace, and we finally see need and our only hope, and we are convinced by his love. Compelled by his love because we have been recreated by his grace, and so we persuade others, and we live for him. Because we are called to be the ambassadors that the king saved us to be. Right? He, he saved us, like truly and, and actually and completely. Like it's not like stuff that's left to do to make sure that you get in. And as people who can finally see reality, it's, it's, it's not our duty but our privilege to convince others to put the glasses on and see his love. Because through the glasses of the gospel, everyone will finally see who they are, that they are truly enemies of God who are also loved by God. That's why in the last part of our text, we look at our third identity marker, reconciled by God, we implore, we, we plead with, we, we beg people to trust in Jesus. Look at the text. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The text tell us, tells us that God is the one who has done the work. He is the one who has brought us back. He has reconciled us to himself. Those who are in Christ, those who have, have believed and, and identified with Jesus, might no longer be defined by sin, but by the righteousness of God. This is what some Christians call the great exchange. Jesus took our place, paid for our sin, died the death we should have died as the punishment for that sin, that, that, that rebellion, the rejection of God and all that he is. And instead of receiving death, by faith in Jesus, we receive life. We, no, we are no longer seen as sinners that are deserving wrath, but children of God in, in righteousness because of Jesus. We have been reconciled to God, brought back into And since our new identity is in Christ, is, is, is reconciled, is, is recreated by grace, compelled by love, Paul says we are marked off as messengers, or even more specific, as ambassadors for the king. We received his message of reconciliation, and now we are commissioned into his ministry of reconciliation, which is why verse 20 tells us this. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We were reconciled to God. We have been given this ministry and message of reconciliation, and so we live as ambassadors of King Jesus. Well, ambassador, he's, he's using a word picture. Right? Like, like an ambassador who serves the king and delivers the message of the king, we do the same. We're not responsible for the outcome of the message. We do not have the authority to change the message. But we do try to convince people that this message is not only credible, but must be obeyed. The text tells us that it is as if God is appealing to people through us. 
He is drawing people to himself through us. This is why we implore, why we plead with, why we we beg people to receive the message, because we know what it means. But ultimately, we are not the ones that are responsible for the way that people respond to that message. Because we are ambassadors. And so we are are faithful to deliver the message, and we trust the king to work. Too often we struggle in this area of evangelism because we think that that we are responsible to carry someone to to salvation from zero to 100. As As if anything less than someone trusting in Jesus and praying a prayer is a failure to evangelize. What if God, in his sovereignty, is using us in the life of someone else to break down someone's negative stereotypes about Christianity? and still loving Jesus, and loving them enough to tell them about Jesus, isn't what brings them to Jesus, but it's what breaks down another barrier to Jesus. What if God is playing the long game, and we are a a part of this person's journey back to God decades later? You and I are not responsible to save anybody, because when I can't save anybody. This is where many errors about evangelism short-circuit our calling as witnesses because we believe that we have to get someone to confess and believe in Jesus, which means we consider anything less than doing that a a, a failure. Or or, or maybe we even get weird and we do whatever it takes uh, to, to, to get someone to say that they believe. Or we struggle to evangelize because there's too much pressure and, and, and we are worried that we're going to say the wrong thing. And that will be it. God will have missed this chance with this person. If you and I can't save anyone, then you and I can't get in God's way trying to save somebody. We may stumble over our words. We may struggle to answer a difficult question, but I think it's better to try to be obedient to who God has called us to be than to sit on the sidelines worried we don't know how to run the plays. The text is clear. It is God who is making his appeal. It is God who is doing the reconciling. Our job is to open our mouths, not try to be the Savior. There's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. We are compelled by love, so we persuade. We have been recreated by grace, so we live for him. We have been reconciled by God, so we implore. His his love drives us, his grace shapes us, and his reconciliation reminds us that this is both urgent and necessary. We need Jesus, and so other people need Jesus. He's not just a nice add-on to our lives. If we really believe that Jesus is the only hope for sinners dead in their sins, then the motivation for evangelism is pretty easy. That is, if we really believe that. Convinced people seek to convince others of what has convinced them. Reconciled people participate, seek to participate in the reconciliation of others by telling people about Jesus. Not through some evangelistic program, but by cultivating a culture of evangelism. I said this phrase at the beginning of the sermon, and after going through the text, now I want to explain what I mean when I say that. You see, a culture of evangelism values people over programs, budgets for coffee over events, means no one rides the bench, takes faith-filled risks, is, is urgent without manipulating, is confident without bullying, is gentle without fear. The goal is not another program or event, but relationship. These days... More and more people come to know Jesus over a spiritual conversation over coffee or or, or tea rather than a big blowout event at a church. Things have changed. Gone are the days of a big tent revival where Christianity was semi-respected in the public sphere and people were semi-interested in God. We live in a society that doesn't just ignore God but thinks that he's dangerous. 
Christianity is no longer just, just another option. It's actually believed to be a, a toxic option for society. Which means that spiritual conversations with people break through barriers with non-believers more easily than any event or program because they can actually witness the love of Jesus before them. And a culture of evangelism recognizes this and seeks to grow in boldness while also growing in relationship. Which means that a culture of evangelism recognizes that everybody needs to be on. Evangelism isn't just something for the quote-unquote professionals. It's a gift of evangelism. This is the call of every believer. We are all called to take faith-filled risks. Actually trusting that God will work through us when we ask someone, hey, I noticed this the other day and I was actually wondering if you'd be open to having a spiritual conversation. Would that offend you? Because we're intentionally asking, what do you about it? Because this is urgent. Pe- people need Jesus, but, but we still refuse to manipulate. Right? We don't try tactics like, like playing music over an altar call to try to get people, more people up. Right? That's why you've never heard me say, like, hey, everybody put your heads down and, and raise your hands. And then me going, I see that hand. We're not trying to... to get people into uh, uh, saying the sinner's prayer as quickly as possible. We tell people the truth about Jesus, especially the hard stuff. Especially the stuff like where Jesus calls people to die to themselves. Where Jesus tells us that we're all sinners. And so we are confident in the message of Jesus, but, but we don't bully people. Right? The text says we no longer regard people according to a worldly point of view. We, we see them with the compassionate eyes of Jesus, and we invite them to find rest for their souls in Jesus. 1 Peter 3.15, which we studied with the men's Bible study this past week, tells us to always be ready to give an answer. But then it tells us to do this with gentleness and respect. The word respect there is actually the same word that we use in our text about fearing the Lord. We are gentle as we tell people why we can have hope, but we are fearing God and we are respectful of others because we know that we are not the ones who save. He is. We are the ones who testify. This is what I'm praying for us as a church family, that we would be marked by a culture of evangelism that doesn't look to, to programs or events to tell people about Jesus. Programs and events have their place. But that encourages each of us individually and tells us collectively as a church to, to do it. And so as we close, I actually wanted to, I've done this a couple times in this series, and I want to keep doing it. I want to give you a couple things that I've found in, in my reading and in my practice that have helped me exercise the discipline of evangelism. Because it really is a discipline, something that you actually have to continue to build a habit of. And so here's, here's my uh, practical list, which is by no means exhaustive, but has been helpful for me, and I pray is helpful for you. The first thing I would say is you got to be intentional. Telling people about Jesus rarely happens by accident. And so for many of us, we may, not, we may only have a handful of people that we know are not believers. And so we need to be intentional to pursue relationships with people that the Lord has put around us, whether they're believers or not. Like our neighbors and our coworkers, like, like going to the same barber over and over again, or, or, or making sure you learn the name of the cashier at, at, at the grocery store that you go to regularly. Be intentional about getting to know people, not just so that you can somehow squeeze Jesus in, but actually have a relationship with them. And then look for ways that the Lord might open a door for you to tell them about Jesus. Which means that you also have to be prepared. Like 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, you need to always be prepared to give an answer. Which assumes that people are asking. And so if someone did ask, would you know what to tell them why you have hope in Jesus? Not just if someone asks you a question like, hey, why are you a Christian? Because that's a great question, but it's not really the typical question. 
more often you'll get a question like, hey, how in the world can you be so calm right now? Or why do you always seem to be like happy and positive and kind to people, even when they say, like, I just don't understand it. Are we ready to explain why and point to Jesus? You also have to learn how to be curious. I snitch on myself every time I hang out with someone. Usually it comes mid-conversation because I forget to do this. But I have to tell people that I am an intensely curious person. That I always have 10 questions in the barrel at all times. Like I am ready to go. And, and it's not because I want to interrogate you. It's just because I am super curious and I want. And then you say something and then I'm like 10 questions deep on another topic. That's just my nature. But I do think if we want to uh, continue to talk to people about Jesus, we need to learn how to ask good questions. I mean, this is conversation 101. But part of telling people about Jesus usually means asking better questions and listening better than you speak. See, Jesus was the master at asking the right question at the right time that unlocked a person's heart. If you remember it, think about the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well. By the end of their conversation, she not only believed in him, but became one of his most effective and enthusiastic missionaries while he was on this earth. Because he asked good questions. But he didn't stop there. He also gave good answers. Which is why we need to be intentional and why we need to be prepared. But, but we also have to be honest. We've got to tell the truth about Jesus. About humanity. About sin and judgment. About true life and what will really satisfy. Don't leave out Jesus' extreme demands where he asks us for everything. Not just Sunday mornings, but our whole lives. If someone asks a question that you don't know the answer to, be honest about that too. Tell them you don't know and go find out. That's not a failure to evangelize. In fact, at the end of it, you won't even just answer their question. It'll strengthen your faith because you'll learn something new too. Sometimes we also have to be honest and explain that there isn't an answer. You know, I really don't know why God let your friend die. I, I really don't have an answer as to why your life has been so hard up to this point. What I can tell you is that God loves you more than you could ever imagine that God has not been absent, that God has been present, and, and that's why I'm telling you about him right now. Our job is not to save, but to try to convince without manipulating and, and, and try to convince without holding back information and telling the truth about Jesus. And even saying that, I would say we need to learn how to be confident. Be confident in Jesus. Right, be confident in the reality that he has shown you, that, that you no longer consider him or anyone else according to a worldly perspective, but that you see yourself, you see God, you see others through his lens, with his love. Be confident in the truth of Christ. Our confidence in evangelism is not because we have a bunch of head knowledge and can answer any question that comes our way. It's not because we're really good at talking and I make sure that I, I can handle it. Our confidence is that God, by his spirit, is present with us and is working through us, making his appeal through us for his glory and for the good of the other person. In fact, sometimes it's the weakest conversations that wins, the, wins people to Jesus. That you didn't have all the answers, but God was doing a work in their heart. And you're just the one, you're just the lucky person who got to get to the end of the spectrum that God has been building for all these years and got to talk about Jesus here at the end that brought them, that, that surpassed the last barrier which is why I would say we need to be loving. You might have heard this before, but very rarely do people get argued into the kingdom. And if they do, they usually have the bruises to show for it. Demonstrate the compassion that Jesus demonstrates. The, the woman at the well and, and Zacchaeus in the tree and Nicodemus in the dead of night. A, a, a compassion that says, I love you enough to tell you the truth, but I love you enough to say it in a way that, that you could hear it. 
a church planner named Max Stiles uh, cautions in his book on evangelism that it's very possible to argue for Christianity without ever giving the gospel, without actually evangelizing. It's possible to argue for the faith and give all the reasons why Christianity is reasonable or God is real or any other things we like to debate about without actually giving the gospel to someone. Evangelism is not about debating ideas, but declaring the gospel. Telling people about Jesus, trying to persuade them that he is who he says he is and has done what he says he has done and that he is our only hope. Knowing that ultimately we are not the ones who who finally persuade someone. God is the only one who can do that. We are called to be faithful. We are called to be loving, compelled by love, remember? And so my last uh, recommendation is just be human. Like, we're not trying to trap people into the kingdom. We're not trying to, to corner them with a tract. We want to get to know people, and we want to help people get to know Jesus. So give yourself grace when you're evangelizing. You, you're not going to always get it right, but keep going. Try and meet people where they are. Ask good questions. Ask each other, hey, I talked to someone about Jesus. What would you have said? Love people well. But I'll remind, even as I end all this practical, telling people about a new show we've watched or, or a book they just have to read or, or, or a recipe they just have to try, at the end of the day, we have answers to life's deepest questions, to people's deepest needs. And it's not an exaggeration to say that this is about life and death, which is why our text sounds the alarm in 6, 1 through 2 like this. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, God says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of my salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Urge people to receive God's grace. Because now is the time. God is patiently waiting for more and more people to come to him, to believe. God is still at work, even here and now, saving people, reconciling people to himself through Jesus Christ. And this is why preaching the gospel is not just a presentation of facts, but an invitation to respond. We invite people to respond, to believe, to trust in Jesus, because we are called to be the ambassadors that the king saved us to be. He is making his appeal through us. How can he make his appeal if we refuse to open our mouths? If we are too nervous to say anything, if we believe that it is offensive to share the message. Scriptures do tell us that the message is offensive, and it is even more offensive in our society. But we have to recognize it's also the most loving thing we can do for someone. To introduce people to the only one who can save them. We are his witnesses. To be a Christian is to be a witness. To be a Christian is to be an ambassador. Evangelism is the job of every Christian. However the Lord has gifted you, that doesn't mean that you strike up a conversation with everybody. That doesn't mean that you're Bill Curley or Mike Griffith that can talk to even the wall. They didn't know I was going to do that. It means that the Lord has built you in a particular way with a particular personality and he has saved you because there are other people that are like you that he wants to save and he is making his appeal through you for their sake. Maybe it means that that you just showed up and loved your neighbor over and over again. And when they finally asked you, you talked about Jesus. Maybe it's that you wrote a letter. Maybe it's that that you're just being honest in your work dealings. And then you finally get a chance to talk to someone. I don't know what it looks like. But too often we forget or we refuse or we are scared of evangelism because we think it's just for the extroverted people who can talk a lot. That's not the case. It's for every single Christian. To tell people 
uh, who are Christians who are convinced, who are trying to convince others of what has convinced them, that Jesus truly loves us. So as we prepare to sing in response to what God has shown us from his word this morning, I want to invite you to pray with me that, yes, we might grow in our boldness to share, but that we might also grow in our trust in God to save, and that as a church family, God might cultivate a culture of evangelism among us. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, this morning we pray out of our gratitude. You have reconciled us to yourself in Christ and brought us back into relationship, and for that we are eternally grateful. There was was nothing we could do, and yet you saved us. And so this morning we pray that the love that we have received would also compel us to share the good news of your salvation. You have saved us, and we pray that you would use us to save others. We pray that you would save our neighbors and our coworkers. Lord, as we pray throughout this season of Lent, we pray that you would draw the one person we've been praying for to you. Would you open their heart? Would you help them to see you truly? By the power of your spirit, would you show them their great sin and show them their even greater Savior like you have shown us? Father, we pray that you would awaken us to the desperate need of others to know you. Lord, we know what you can do because you have done it in us. We see in the history of the church your power to bring revival and and save many. And so this morning, we even pray for revival here in Streamwood. We know what you can do, and so we ask you to do it here. We pray trusting in you. You have not only reconciled us, you've given us the ministry and message of reconciliation. And so we ask that you would cultivate a, a culture of evangelism in this church family. Would you help us to grow in our confidence and ability to talk to others about Jesus and help us to keep each other accountable to it? Lord, ultimately, we pray that you would bring people to yourself through us and through this family. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.